developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi friends, this is Dr. Lynn and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today visiting with us is Dr. Mike Rucker. Today we're going to talk about the science of fun, which is what I live for, so I'm very excited about this. But let's talk a little bit, uh, let me share a little information about Mike. Dr. Mike Rucker is an organizational psychologist, behavioral scientist, and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. He has been academically published in publications like the International Journal of Workplace Health Management. His ideas about fun and health have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Psychology Today, Forbes, Thrive Global, Mindful, and more. He currently serves as a senior leader at Active Wellness and is the author of the best-selling book, which I'm happy to say I just finished uh, listening to, called The Fun Habit. Congrats uh, that it's now out, Mike. So welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Lynn. It's certainly my pleasure. So let's just jump in. You know, so often I hear people talk about, I'm just not happy. I'm just not. How do I become happy? And I know your book really uh, talks a lot about the difference between happiness and fun. So why don't you share share that to start with? Yeah, so as a you know charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association, I've been looking at happiness as a construct for quite some time. And I think what's happened is we we're in this period of overcorrection. So in the last decade, we know that this sort of good vibes only mentality that sort of circumvents the idea of emotional flexibility. So pursuing happiness end, endlessly as, as a goal is actually paradoxically making a lot of people unhappy. And that's really because it's an exercise in evaluation, especially as we actualize happiness in the West, right? It becomes this you know vehicle to sort of compare ourselves against our neighbors, the quote unquote Joneses, um, folks that are familiar with the concept of the uh, hedonic treadmill, you know, it is an ode to the fact that we adapt to any goodwill or um, windfall that comes our way. You know, obviously we are elated for a short period of time, but we generally adapt to our circumstances if we're always kind of in that state of contemplation, looking in the rearview mirror, which is the way we've been kind of trained to think about happiness, right? So this construct of fun, enjoying yourself, finding joy and delight in the moment, is really just a reframe of knowing that you have the agency and autonomy to find happiness right where you are. And it doesn't necessarily require, you know, figuring out what your rank is 
in, in regards to the social norms that you live in. It's really just about fitting in with your friends and the activities that you enjoy. Well, that's really interesting. You know, you mentioned pursuing happiness, especially in the West, and how we're always comparing. Does your data look at other places in the world where um, certainly the economic and the pressures are are a lot different, and and maybe there's not you know nearly so much money, but you know I've always noticed when I've traveled internationally and especially in third world countries, many of those folks seem to be enjoying life and having fun, even though they don't have all the money and all the the great values that we have. Have you researched other countries as well to see if this is true in the world? So to be transparent, I'm a behavioral scientist, so I've looked more at the construct of fun with regards to its action orientation, but I'm very familiar with the science in this area. The professor that I really like is Dr. Iris Mouse out of University of California, Berkeley, and her and her colleagues have looked at the nuances between folks that live in an individualistic society, so primarily every country in the West, and then Eastern um, social norms where collectivism is you know, sort of the social norm. And so what we see is that the way we've kind of been you know, uh, groomed here is that when something good happens, we actualize it in the self. And when something bad happens, we tend to carry that weight um, by ourselves, right? You know, especially there's a, a slight gender bias here, but especially men really have a problem reaching out for help when bad things happen. But to right. answer your question, in collectivist societies, things that happen, like let's say, you know, your uh, sibling or sorry, your child gets into a great school, those types of accolades are celebrated throughout the group. And likewise, anything bad that happens, you know, traumatic events. Uh, there's this immune system within that social network that really provides support for the individual. And so these things are actualized as a network rather than as an N of one, which tends to be the way we go about things here in the West. Yeah, that points to la- either lack of community or lack of utilizing community, uh, which I know is a big problem, starting with kids and being left out. And there's a whole host of reasons all the way from psychology down to neuroscience that we're getting to understand better, right? You know, obviously the good life done by Dr. Robert is is really highlighting the both physiological and psychological impacts of loneliness. Um, Dr. Paul Zach's work on oxytocin, we know that when we feel like we're in a more me environment than a we environment, you know, we might get, you know, some of that neurochemical sort of cocktail that makes us feel like we're feeling good, but oxytocin that really makes us comfortable, develops empathy, that only happens through social exchange, right? So if everything is sort of at the individual level, we're not getting that feeling that we're connected to something bigger than ourselves. And so everything is sort of this personal grind, right? Rather than being able to realize that you really do have a support network around you. That's so interesting to start hearing the science behind loneliness and the power of community. And, um, you know, I've had several podcast guests on and um, they've told stories of, for example, recovering from cancer or, you know, major life crises. And the healing has really come from the power of community, of people being there to help support, sometimes just in conversation. 
much less, you know, food and, and other means. So it's really interesting to start hearing some of the science now that you, you and others are researching behind uh, what it takes not to be lonely. But the, go but the problem is people always go, I don't want to be lonely. And they talk about what they're not. But I think your book really talks about what you can do. So the end result is you're not either lonely or unhappy. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think, you know, the subtle <laughs> distinction is that often when we're stuck in states of rumination, we're expending that energy that we could be using to explore the territory of the options that we have. And so, you know, and, and that's what the science suggests as well. You know, one way to look at it is when you're sort of stuck in this unhappy state and instead of using your agency and autonomy to get out of it, when you're stuck in this rumination, what happens is you see yourself at point A and happiness off in the distance, right? So it's this goalpost that keeps moving on you. And so you ruminate on that distance between where you are and where you want to be. And what's insidious about it is once you think about that long enough, subconsciously, you just identify as an unhappy person, whether or not you would say that out loud or not, right? And so once that bleeds into your identity, it can begin to become a self-fulfilling prophecy where you're starting to look for artifacts to support this idea that you are unhappy. So much so that we now know through again, empirical findings, it can lead to true clinical outcomes like depression and anxiety, unfortunately. So the subtle shift is just realizing instead of using that energy and burning it for rumination, how about just being a little bit premeditated about the things that would fill your cup? You know, whether that's pro-social behavior or if you're an introvert, you know, connecting with something that's really enjoyable to you. So let's talk about, I, th I think uh, you've been very clear on you know, when you are unhappy, it's almost like you're, that's your declaration and that's what you live into. I'm unhappy. Um, so start talking about fun. You know, those are, that's what your book seems to really uh, spend a lot of time talking about how uh, to move into fun and why it's more productive use of, of our energy. Yeah. So fun, just for the folks that want sort of a simple definition in psychology, we have this concept of valence, but valence is really easy to understand. It's essentially, are you finding pleasure in the things that you're doing or are you kind of repelled and, you know, are, are the things you're doing depleting? So anything on the negative side of valence, you know, to the left are things that we, you know, aren't enjoyable. We don't have fun doing them. Anything on the right, you know, we do enjoy doing them. But I think what's happened, especially, you know, here in the West where we're kind of you know, have these social norms of meritocracy and, you know, whether it's still the entrenched Protestant work ethics, we derive too much self-worth from productivity. But what we now know is that in this concept in psychology is called the hedonic flexibility principle, the folks that are able to create those transition rituals, right? So they break from work to leisure. So they're really productive during a certain amount of time, but then are able to enjoy themselves afterwards, paradoxically are the most productive people. So not only are they producing more than folks that, you know, kind of just hustle through the day and sort of work from waking up till their head hits the pillow, they, we found that they're also the ones that seek out harder challenges. Because even if you're type A and, and you're a workaholic, if you're burnt out, you tend to need to use the heuristics and algorithms that you have because you can't think out of the box, right? That, cre that creates too much cognitive load and you're exhausted. So... Again, paradoxically, the folks that are having fun are the ones that are 
doing better work and more work. And so under that context, we do need to radically reframe, you know, fun from being this whimsical act and maybe something that's done after the work gets done to something that's as restorative as sleep. And so oftentimes I like to look at, you know, just to use as an example, remember in the 90s when hustle culture was really prevalent and you know, we would champion sleep deprivation, right? Like you could be right. more, yeah. And you would just never do that now, right? Even, you know, the Gary, or excuse me, the Grant Cordones of the world that, you know, still kind of perpetuate this idea of, of hustle culture would never recommend sleep deprivation because we know that if you don't get seven to eight hours of sleep, you're just eventually going to fall off a cliff. Well, we're now finding the same with fun and leisure. And so, folks that aren't engaged in that, even though it's a little bit slower and more insidious than sleep, you know, eventually five, six months down the line, they're the ones that are burnt out and don't understand why that happened. Right. You know, that that makes me think when you talked about the hustle culture, I remember taking courses and they would often just over and over say, you can sleep when you die. Right. I think I fell into that camp. So I'm throwing rocks at a glass house. (laughs) You know, when I was a a young buck coming up as an entrepreneur, I latched on to the wisdom of folks like Gary Vaynerchuk. And, you know, that was I remember he said, stop watching Lost if you want to be, you know, a a successful entrepreneur. You know, the idea was to circumvent any pleasure in your life because you could do that later. And we now know just how much folly is integrated into those types of suggestions, so much so that even Gary Vee has a chief happiness officer right now part of his his corporation. So I think, you know, we learn these things as we go, but unfortunately, you know, we, I, you know, whether you're spiritual or not, I, I think there's a component of life that's meant to be enjoyed. And so, you know, most spiritual disciplines suggest that certainly, you know, the science now proves it through the hedonic flexibility principle, but yet we're still kind of stuck in this old pure, you know, that again, somehow anything outside of work, you know, literally is unholy in 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 the puritan uh, protestant sort of viewpoint right and so you have that but then also for whatever reason especially in the united states we're really the last to get the message so we're second to last um, in the developed world with regards to giving leisure to employees you know at 10 days off per one year's worth of work there's only one country behind us micronesia at nine days off per uh, one year's worth of work And what's worse than that is even though we're the second to last, only 50% of employees are even taking the time off that they were given. And yet we're seeing record levels of burnout. As an academic, I've studied physicians the most. This is the worst year for them. 63% of physicians in 2023 are reporting that they're burnt out. That's the worst we've ever seen it. And you're seeing those same types of statistics across all vocations. So we really do need to wake up to the fact that we're just not enjoying things, and it's having a real impact, both psychologically and physiologically. Well, that's so very true, and especially I'm a physician, and coming out of the several years of the pandemic, and part of the burnout is just not having staff, um, you know, not getting supplies, and so it's got this, you know, chain of effects. But but my question to you is, and it's disheartening to hear that the U.S. is pretty much on the bottom. It's no surprise, but just disheartening of understanding the importance uh, of leisure time and enjoyment. What do you think, you know, the underneath drive is for that? Because how do we change it if we don't address that drive? 
So you're slowly but surely starting to see um, some things emerge, right? Um, hopefully we will take note of how the EU and Oceania has been successful. So, you know, in earnest, some countries in the EU are um, incorporating a four-day work week and they're actually seeing productivity go up, no impact, you know, um, with regards to output, less people are getting sick, you know, so it has a whole host of benefits. You're seeing countries like France shut down email servers on Friday so that it's just a social norm that work is not meant to happen on Saturday and Sunday, you know, so that because, again, there are multiple headwinds, right, that are kind of coming at us. And this isn't just a U.S. problem. It's, it's a global problem. You know, the advent of heuristic knowledge work from algorithmic work back in the day when we made widgets, we knew if we made 40 widgets, we could go home and enjoy ourselves. Now with knowledge work, we never really know when the day is done. And then also right. we have all of these devices that essentially allow us to be on all the time, right? I mean, I know if I don't turn off my notifications and I kind of get a bing from Gmail at 8 p.m., even with my kids, I kind of, it, it's literally like an addiction. I get kind of itchy. I want to know, you know, what's behind uh, um, that notification. And so we have these things that are designed to capture our attention. I mean, we're literally living in the quote unquote attention economy. And yet we don't have the bumper rails to, uh, you know, to circumvent some of these ill effects that are happening. And so to answer your question, we need to put those in place. You are seeing uh, Fortune 500 companies now literally having to incentivize employees to take vacations because they know if they don't, they will burn out. And so it's really, I think, Unfortunately, because where we live in such a, you know, productive uh, society run by meritocracy, it's going to have to come from the top down. And hopefully we will take, uh, you know, some cues from countries that are doing it without any impact and, and quite the contrary, actually, you know, leading to better outcomes anyways. That's really interesting because my view has been the only way it would change is start from the bottom up. Um, but it really is about money and and I know especially with the pandemic and more and more people working at home, which is great, but then it makes it even that much more difficult to separate uh, when you're done with the day and, and turning off the work. Well, um, and I think you are seeing a groundswell, right? Certainly um, the great resignation that happened, you know, I think it's still happening this year, but certainly happened in 2022 where millennials and Gen Zs realizing you know, they were seeing the parity gap and realizing that they were being incentivized in interesting ways to essentially line the pockets of the top 1%. And so I don't really have a political stance on that, but I think what is happening is that the over-optimization of employees has kind of reached a breaking point, right? I unpack it a little bit in the book with regards to the gig economy, because that was done in a very nefarious way. You know, apps like Uber that sort of through the guise of, you know, a lot, making someone believe that they had autonomy and were gonna be their own entrepreneur. We're really using game mechanics to make these drivers work more for less money. And you're seeing that in, in other gig economy type apps, but certainly at a kind of more general scale, you're seeing that in organizations as well. So I think you're spot on. It's gonna require, you know, some empathy that allows employees to really have a voice. And then it's also gonna, you know, because leadership ultimately does make the rules, it's going to require a top-down approach too. I think we need to meet in the middle there. Yeah, it really 
really is going to take a uh, mind shift because, you know, this is making me reflect on my own growth and development. And and I was a, a parent. I remember when my kids were in college and it was very expensive to send them to college and they wanted to take a couple fun classes. And I'm like, hey, you know, this costs a lot of money. You should take six classes, not five classes. Get your, you know. So I see how ingrained it was in my mind just thinking about for the longest time, fund me, and and I, I've always felt that I'm a fun person, but there's a time for it. It was never incorporated into the daily events. And fun seemed to be if you were wasting time, like in school, not taking, you know, the most courses and the hardest courses. And I see the toll. My, it's my kids that started teaching me. That's where I see the, you know, bottom bottom up effect. Talk talk to me about the importance of letting go, having fun, getting to it later. Um, and so it's very ingrained, certainly in the mindset of, you know, people uh, in our generations. So I, I agree that the younger generations, and we look at them as sometimes still being lazy or not working hard enough, but they have a, they come in with this whole balance of life uh, thoughts. And it's almost, uh, we look at it like, geez, we had to put in our time and, you know, sweat. Why do you think you should get through so early? So so I can see it really is going to take a, a significant mindset uh, of working together through generations. Yeah, and it's a complex issue, right? We've got, again, we've already touched on like four different headwinds, and there's so many. I think the one reason to take pause is that our generation and the generation before mine, my parents certainly, there was a pretty equitable exchange of value. You know, I don't have to worry about my parents because they do have a pension and you're just not seeing that in the modern workforce. So we either need to go back and acknowledge that the sacrifice is worth um, that for some, you know, for some, or we need to figure out that, you know, work has radically changed so much that we need a different tool set to go about it so that people don't burn out because again, we're seeing the impact of that in the statistics, right? And so something obviously isn't working and it does need a radical change. Uh, and just from perspective, and we're gonna take a break in just a minute, Mike, but from perspective, is there a lot of research that is being done in this area? Is it is it fueled more through businesses because of the, you know, the uh, burnout and loss of income or through folks, psychologists and scientists like yourselves? Yeah, so there is a significant um, amount of emerging research. I think what has happened is due to the pandemic, it's really muddled the data, you know, to get kind of geeky for a little bit. So, you know, as researchers, we want to know that something can be applicable. And unfortunately, with the pandemic, there were so many extraneous stressors that research kind of needed to start, you know, once we got back to sort of business as usual because there's a whole host of um, you know, unique attributes to work from home. So, but certainly we are, again, waking up to the fact that this lack of leisure seems to be have the same negative impact, again, that sleep deprivation did. So we're starting to look at it at, in the same context. Okay, we're taking a break here. <laughs> <laughs> I got played off, that's great. <laughs>
Can your child see, really see, more than 2020? Does your child struggle in school, have trouble with tracking when reading, or resist writing? Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's book, 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, has identified the top 50 ways for you to achieve excellent results in any sport activity, enhance eye-mind-body coordination skills, achieve the mental edge, prevent injuries. This book belongs in every athlete's or coach's sports bag. Get 50 tips to improve your sports performance on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We've been talking to Dr. Mike Rucker, who is uh, author of the best-selling book, The Fun Habit. And we spent this first half really exploring uh, the whys of why people are not happy and, and the difference between happiness and fun. So, Mike, let's move into how somebody could really start building a fun habit. It sounds simple, but it's sometimes not so simple. So tell us, yeah, share with us some ideas and how people can get started. So one of the things I suggest, and to your point, it it really isn't that difficult. It just requires a little bit of premeditation is to look at, you know, the habits and rhythms of your week. And so there's only 168 hours in any given week. And so just being mindful of how you're spending your time in the book, I have a simple four quadrant model called the play model and play stands for pleasing, living, agonizing and yielding. And so pleasing activities are the things that we can do every day that don't take a ton of energy, but that fill us up. So things like, you know, engaging with friendships, like we've already talked about, uh, engaging with your hobbies, playing with pets, things that are really accessible. And we know that when we're engaged in those activities mindfully, 
that we don't mind wander. And so this research comes from Dan Gilbert and Matthew Killingsworth out of Harvard. And what they found is that folks that aren't kind of mindful about engaging in pleasurable activities tend to just kind of uh, engage in that act of rumination that we talked about that can be really lead to poor mental hygiene. And so making sure that you're integrating those types of activities in your week become important. The living quadrant, we won't go too deep into it, but it's essentially just making sure that you're integrating some activities that you find fun, but are challenging because that's where personal growth comes. And so making sure that you're at least doing, you know, a few things, even just a year that's kind of stretching you becomes important. Agonizing activities are things that generally we kind of have to do, but oftentimes when we look at them critically, there's a way to either improve them or not do them at all, outsource them, you know, in a very easy manner. And the only reason that we haven't done that yet is we, you know, didn't shine a spotlight on it. But I think where the lowest hanging fruit is, especially since we don't have a ton of time, is the yielding quadrant. And that is activities that aren't really fun, even though we kind of trick ourselves into thinking they are, that don't take <laughs> much energy. And why those are important to look at, things like mindlessly scrolling social media, you know, one that I, I tend to um, do if I'm not mindful, uh, doom scrolling news, especially with everything going on, you know, here in the world, um, things like plopping down on the couch and mindlessly channel surfing. So not necessarily, you know, watching your favorite show, but, uh, you know, a good litmus test for that is if I were to ask you in a week, what did you watch, you know, on a Tuesday night, you wouldn't be able to tell me because your brain essentially knew it wasn't important and didn't encode those memories. Those are things that a lot of people do just to displace boredom, loneliness, and discomfort um, and trick themselves into thinking it's enjoyable. And that really bleeds into that concept of the hedonic flexibility principle. When we know people are kind of using their time unwisely in this fashion, and almost all of us are when we critically look at how we've habituated our behavior, that's when it, it's not, it doesn't lead to betterment or fulfillment and it doesn't fill our batteries up. And so by taking this time audit, kind of understanding, you know, the activities that are agonizing and yielding in those quadrants and then figuring out ways to potentially improve the way you're using that time um, is a great way to sort of instill this fun habit. And it doesn't take a lot, right? We're really talking about just manipulating two to three hours out of your 168. So even folks in the quote unquote sandwich generation, you know, folks that have young children, but are also taking care of aging parents. Most of those folks, when you look at their time critically, and these are folks, you know, that are, are time poor for all accounts, can generally find one or two hours that where they can kind of flip the script and make it for, fun for themselves. And that's all it takes to build this upward momentum rather than this downward spiral of depletion so many of us find ourselves in. So when you said uh, one to two hours, you're talking about one to two hours a day? Yeah, so that's the ideal. But generally, I say, let's just start with two to three hours a week, right? Because so many of us say that, you know, we're not having fun at all. So let's look at just two to three hours out of that 168 that we can manipulate. We're talking about less than 2% of your week, right? And mm -hmm. so I think that's a good starting point for anyone that kind of feels stuck. And generally... And again, it takes two to three weeks, right? Sometimes I'll see folks that want to re-engage with a hobby that, you know, they had maybe, um, you know, a decade or two prior. And that first week will be challenging, right? Let's say it's guitar and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I used to be so good and, and now, you know, this isn't really fun. 
But if they give it two to three weeks and then check in with themselves when they are, you know, kind of at the beginning of a Monday to see, you know, if there's any renewed vigor or vitality, I can tell you a majority of the people are going to be happy they did it. And again, it's a slow effect. So it does take a couple of weeks to kind of adjust um, to the new rhythm. But again, it's it is that simple. So how would you, you know, I'm sure you see many people who would identify as workaholics and they have families and kids and, you know, especially women um, come home and, and, and then if they're the primary caregiver, um, what are some of the fun things they could do without, I'm sure there's guilt initially, but what, what could they do to start getting to that two to three hours um, that would be simple and still, you know, make sure they're taking care of their kids and getting their work done? Yeah, so let's start with that guilt, right? Because it certainly is prevalent. So I have a concept called story editing. I borrowed it from a professor out of the University of Virginia, Dr. Timothy Wilson. And again, just realizing, you know, that if you do feel depleted, that there are two things that happen. One, you're not your best version of yourself. So if you're sort of grounded in wanting to serve others, you're not doing that effectively if you're not enjoying yourself a little bit. Second, there's this concept called social contagion. So if you're not really happy, then you're likely transferring that to your kids and and whoever else is around. And so making sure that you are spending a little bit of time enjoying yourself, even if it takes a little bit of, you know, um, recalibration of your schedule becomes extremely important through that context. I have another concept called activity bundling. So if your life is so overscheduled that there's no way to find that space in your schedule, where are those opportunities with the people that you engage with that you can potentially flip things around? And so it might be, you know, I see a lot of parents that feel a sense of duty to take their kids out of the house. So they'll take them to the park, but they just sit on the bench and essentially scroll social media while their kids are off having a great time. Right. Recapturing your agency autonomy and realizing you can co-create those moments with your kids what do you enjoy and what do they enjoy and meet that in the middle and then actually go and do that thing. For me, you know, to give a personal example, that was taking dance classes with my daughter and then ultimately taking cooking classes with my son because I, instead of doing that, um, you know, I was like, what is something that I want to do that they could also enjoy in? And so not only am I having more fun now instead of just essentially watching my kids, but those memories that we created in those classes you know, we still giggle about, and also we master new skills. So it's just these subtle tweaks that kind of allow you to, you know, again, create this tapestry of life rather than just kind of getting along to get along. That's so very true. And I know for myself, I actually have to put it in my schedule. Talk about over schedulers <laughs> that, you know, either it's time to walk or time for coffee or, and if it's, if it's, if I'm a scheduler and it's in my schedule, good chance it's going to happen. And I know that's um, been helpful in starting to make that break. Well, um, and that's an important, you know, you, it's it's a good piggyback off of, in the book, I, I kind of explain the behavioral science there, but the folks that are having the most fun certainly need to be deliberate about it, right? And so, you know, it's kind of that paradox because saying I have to schedule fun inherently doesn't sound that fun, right? But the world that we live in, making sure that it is a priority. And again, you know, if we're only talking two to three hours a week, that's less than 2%. Like just making sure that you know that you can kind of own those two to three hours becomes an important exercise. And so, 
you know, one being premeditated, kind of just giving a little bit of forethought about the things that you want to do. And then, you know, this concept of pre-committing, which you just described, making sure it goes on your schedule. And for some people, that might not be enough. For some, it's like actually buy the tickets to the show or engage with a friend like, hey, I want to have coffee with you. And so, you know, you're not going to let them down by not going. Those become important to kind of get you out of the house instead of, you know, not circumventing that downward spiral where you're just like so depleted and don't, you know, have the energy to do these types of things. And it's really just that subtle shift. And again, the first week or two can be hard because if we are burnt out, the last thing we want to do is kind of get off the couch, right? Because we have no energy. Right. Well, it's so interesting because as you're speaking, it just helped me again recall I, I had the opportunity to take a trip to Israel with my oldest granddaughter. And just the being with was more fun than any of the activities we really even planned and going to Israel's a huge trip and it was phenomenal. But the being with, the funny things that happen on the plane, the funny things at night when we're getting ready to go to sleep. And um, it just made me realize just the time to commit to be with somebody um, is really invaluable. And that's where I see so much of the fun gets initiated self-fun without necessarily even the activity. Yeah, and you bring up another great point um, that if you are kind of feeling stuck, look for your fun friends, you know, as inspiration, you know, say, hey, I haven't had fun in a long time. Is there something that we could do together? And I, I meant fun people generally do like to be around others. They tend to have an extroverted slant, although there's plenty of fun introverts. But if you have and actually introverts, you know, I think it's a misnomer to say that introverts don't want to be around people. They just don't want to be around crowds, right? So find those fun people if you do feel stuck and say, hey, can we do something together? I just need to get out of the house. Yeah. And, you know, um, again, fun, as much as I've been a, a workaholic, fun has, has and now is a real priority in my life. Things like April Fool's Day, you know, I'm mm -hmm. always looking for I don't need an excuse, but a quote excuse for, for fun. And we've had so much fun on some of those holidays we've had at called truces. And, you know, there's if you stand back, they're silly, they're goofy. You know, this year I, I uh, bought a bunch of Tootsie Pops and broke off the candy and put um, Brussels sprouts oh on the goodness. sticks and then rewrapped <laughs> the Tootsie Pop and gave them out to my kids were sick and I brought them over. Tootsie Pops, and I brought them over a box of donuts filled with strawberries. And so, I mean, the silly, goofy things is what I personally love the best. And um, those don't take really time. It just takes um, really creating fun. You know, that's that's one of my intentions. Every day I create several intentions for my daily life, and fun is always in capital letters. Well, and that's a one-two punch, right? One, the levity kind of breaks the more serious aspects of life that sometimes can feel so heavy on us. But the fact that you've incorporated your social network, again, is creating that we environment. So when you guys laugh together, right, then the problems of the self become a little less serious because, again, we're sort of benefiting from some of that collectivist, you know, immune system that we talked about at the beginning of the hour. Right. That's great. Well, tell us about your book, The Fun Habit. It's now out, and I highly recommend it. it um, I listened to it. Um, tell us about uh, how you got there on your book and, and um, really your intention with that. 
Yeah, thank you. So it really has been a journey. My personal journey was I had over-optimized my life for happiness. And uh, 2016, I had sort of a trifecta of unfortunate events. Um, the biggest one being my younger brother passed away. And being a helpless optimist, I was chasing happiness during that period. And paradoxically, was one of those statistics where it was pretty close to leading to a clinical outcome. And so I really went on this journey of chasing happiness is that problematic, what can we do instead? And so the whole book is a bunch of strategies and tactics, how to do exactly that. We've touched on some of those today. And then also, you know, the science behind it so that if you are rooted in the sense of, well, but so much of my self-worth comes from productivity, understanding that even through that lens, making sure that you're enjoying some of your time becomes important. And then for the nerds like me, there's neuroscience with regards to how indexing, you know, a life uh, that has this tapestry of fun events leads to neuroplasticity. And then, you know, kind of an ode to Bronnie Ware's work that also, you know, we live life with a lot less regret and how important that becomes, especially later in life. So, um, and, and there's some great examples in your books. So, and you want to let our listeners know how they can reach you and um, find your book? Yeah, thank you so much. So the book's everywhere uh, you enjoy buying your book. So if it's Amazon, it's there. If you want to support your local bookstore, I certainly support that. My website is michaelrucker.com, and I write about the science of fun there and uh, have a media section where you can see all the articles that you referenced earlier. Uh, and I play on social media a little bit at The Wonder of Fun on Instagram and perform better on Twitter. That is great. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up? I think, you know, we've really given a nod to the fact that if you want to be your best self, your most productive self, creating these transition rituals between sort of your productive life and a fun life becomes really important. And they certainly can be blended too. Once you kind of, you know, get the hang of it, it really does become this upward spiral that makes your life better. And so, you know, just kind of taking those baby steps into figuring out how do I be a little bit premeditated about sprinkling in some enjoyable things in my life really becomes this restorative tonic that's going to help a lot. And again, we're not this isn't a gateway drug, right? I'm not suggesting a life of whimsy or you go to Burning Man every year unless that's your jam. But if you do find yourself wondering why am I not having more fun, there's some really easy, simple things you can do to better yourself in, in that way. That's great. Thank you, Mike. One last question for you. If you had some magic glasses to see the world through the lens of fun, how would your world look? That's a great question. I think so many of us are kind of living through the lens of martyrdom, right? Like, you know, that life is somehow a means to an end. And I really think life was meant to be enjoyed. And that doesn't circumvent all of the important things that we need to get done. But once we are enjoying ourselves, we're better versions of ourselves. We flip from this me ideology to a we ideology. We know empathy grows. We know kindness grows. We try to better each other along with ourselves. And so everything is additive. And so using fun in that context isn't just a selfish act of hedonism, right? It's really a way to 
truly be a change maker and make the impact that you want to see in the world. That's great. And I know just asking myself that question, I encourage our listeners to do the same. My imagery is there's so much laughter. It's out in nature. There's blue sky. There's kids. There's singing. I just see the world um, together and healed. And and it's funny, the access of a word or an intention can truly open up a whole whole new way of being. So. For the folks that are listening that are change makers, it's an important aspect of service too. I think, you know, I unpacked it in the last chapter of the book for folks that really do want to make an impact. If they don't have, you know, the fuel in their tank to be able to do that because they are grinding themselves down to a nub, they're ultimately not going to be able to make the impact that they want. So, you know, it's one thing to, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur or hard driving A type you know, to use these tools to sort of better yourself. But for the folks that really are trying to live a life of service, these become extremely important as well, because it's a way to have the vitality and energy to do, you know, to create the impact that you want. So again, it's not a self-serving, you know, uh, action tool set. It's really a way to, you know, better society as well. And so, you know, I guess, you know, to conclude, like, it's not just, you know, um, a vehicle to improve yourself, but again, a way to uh, improve the world at large. Thank you so much for that. And just bringing, bringing not only importance, but the power of, of fun. Um, and it's, it's truly a very important and, and some, uh, not, I don't want to call it a goal, a way of being, uh, to create a life for us. And, and you've emphasized the importance of community and others as well. Well, Mike, we're we're ending our time here, and I just want to thank you so much for your inspiration and and words of wisdom. I encourage our audience to uh, check out your website, look at your book, and truly, if there's one takeaway from today, is go out and have at least a moment of fun. Thanks so very much. Thank you, Dr. Lana. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.